It's a dangerous business, Frodo, going out your door. You step onto the road, and if you don't keep your feet, there's no knowing where you might be swept off to. Gandalf says that to Frodo at the beginning of Lord of the Rings. You're here and you have no idea what Lord of the Rings is. That's okay. Uh, I read that quote to my girlfriend Emily last night, and she was like, I don't even know who Frodo is, but that quote's awesome. And so, and so I, I share that. I share that because Frodo didn't know what was going to happen on the journey, but he knew that he was going to take a step into it. He knew that he was going to begin it. And it was a journey that was full of adventure. It was full of change. Um, there was both evil and good. And you see there were hero- heroes and villains. But the journey left him changed. It left him changed. It molded the way that he saw everything else around him. It changed his perspective. It changed who he was. And so today we're going to begin a new journey. Um, we're going to go through the book of Romans now, perhaps you're saying, well, listen, I would rather go on mountains and go in wild adventures, but can I tell you that if you traverse truly the book of Romans, it will leave you changed. It will change forever the way that you see yourself, the way that you see God, the way that you see everyone else around you. St. Augustine, who was probably and arguably the most notable theologian since Paul of the entire church, was ravaged by sexual lust and by passion in his younger years. His mother, Monica, prayed for him dearly. And he was a very intelligent, very, very intelligent man. And it was in his 30s, after he had been ravished, after he searched the landscape of other philosophies in the world, that he heard St. Ambrose preach over Romans. He was convicted to the heart. And knowing his sin, knowing his lust, he heard the Spirit lead him to go and to read Romans. And it was through the book of Romans that he came to know Christ, that he came to see the glory of God. Luther, Luther, who was the initiator of the whole Protestant Reformation, who his whole idea of God, Luther's idea of God was that God was one who was full of wrath, who was angry, that there was nothing but hell and judgment for us. Who he said, he, he thought the best way to becoming, to getting to heaven was by being a monk. And he, he had a quote, he said, listen, if, if anybody could get in by their monkery into heaven, it was surely I. And so he sought to earn his way. And it was only when he was a professor um, at teaching at, at Wittenberg that he unpacked Romans 1, 16 and 17 and it forever changed his life. And that he led right a whole new reformation that, that sought to see that we are justified by faith, right, alone and grace. Now this John Wesley, who was an enlightenment preacher, um, he started a whole Bible society club. He did all kinds of good works. He started philanthropy. Um, he went around the world to reach all kinds of different people. But all of these things were in order that God might see him and that God might be, might be pleased with his good deeds. It was when he, be, he read Luther's commentary on Romans and was convicted. And then he said that he felt his heart grow strangely warm and he knew the presence of God and his forgiveness in his life. And so I want to challenge you that it's not just these extraordinary men that God has used greatly because they were all so ordinary. It's God that makes people extraordinary, and he will change us. The book of Romans will forever change us if we truly traverse it, if we truly go into it, if we allow it to mold us, if we allow it to mold us. So if you're here and perhaps you're, you're not a Christian or you're far from God, um, I want to encourage you that... As we begin our study, and especially today as we, be, uh, as we start going through Romans, I want to challenge you and push back and say that you were made for more than you. I want to encourage you to realize that your life will self-destruct if all you see is you. 
that you were made to orbit around something bigger and that Romans will challenge you if you see it, you'll see that you have a greater purpose than what you're living for right now. And that perhaps if you, you are a Christian, what I want to challenge us is I want to be, I want to challenge us to be a people of the gospel, right? That we are noted and marked by the gospel of God, that God's glory is what, is what directs us, is what guides us, is what motivates us. And so often we come and we say, yes, of, of course, Trevor, you know, like, yeah, I'm, I'm a, I'm a person of the gospel. I, I would believe these things. But is it really the, is it ingrained in us? Is it what we bleed? Is what we ooze? Is the, is the good news of what Jesus has done for us? And when we read Romans, as we intake this, it will infuse in us. It will sink the gospel deep into our hearts that when we're pressed, that is what will come out. That is what will come forth from us. So what is, um, sorry, before we do that, um, why do we even read the Bible? Right, um, we go through these these sermons. They're going through books of the Bible, and uh, and sometimes I have I have kind of pushed back and say, why don't we do topical series? You know, why do we even why do we go through the Bible? And and it kind of goes back to I had a friend that wasn't a Christian. I was talking to him um, after a basketball game, and just kind of engaging him about Christianity and about what he thought about and why what he believed. And he kind of came out with, you know, I think Jesus is a, a, was a good moral teacher, that kind of line of thinking. So I just asked, have you ever read the Bible? Yeah, have you ever have you ever read it? You know, have you ever opened up its pages? Have you ever studied the Gospels? And he was like, No, not really. I, well, why? Why not? He says, Well, it's old and it's irrelevant. I don't have time. I won't waste my time reading something that's two thousand years old. It's old and it's irrelevant. And you see, I I don't think any of us would say that, right? We would never say that, but our lives oftentimes scream it, right? That what we don't say with our mouths, our lives scream out that we think God's word is irrelevant that we think it's old, that we think it's dull and it doesn't apply to us because we don't spend any time with it. Our lives, we do what we think is important. We do what we think is valuable. And so one of the things I want to encourage is that God's word actually is, the Bible actually is valuable. Um, one of the things we notice is that it's been the book that has transformed the most lives throughout human history. Right? If you ever go on to Amazon, what's the first thing that you guys do? The first thing that I look at the reviews, right? I go and I look at like how many reviews does this have? Like what do they say about it? How does that stack up? And that kind of helps my comparison. One of the things that we see in the scriptures is that there's no other book that has transformed as many lives as the scriptures has, as the Bible has, right? It, it across cultures, right? So it's not just one perspective that gets it, but it's across cultures of all different kinds of people, different, different ages, testify that reading this book will transform the very fabric of your life. And do you see, it's not about, it's not about coming to the Bible and saying, well, I'm going to master the Bible because often that's what we approach it for is I'm going to come, I'm going to read it and I'm going to understand its content. But can I tell you the longer that I've read the Bible, the more that I see, it's not about me mastering the Bible, but it's instead about the Bible mastering me. That as I read it, it is the one that conforms me. It is the one that transforms me. It is the one that speaks into my life, it holds up a mirror almost that shows me myself and then comes and guides me to be what I ought to be. And so can I tell you the reason we preach through God's word is because God's word transforms us. Because when we open, when we preach through this, it's not just somebody talking, right? That God actually speaks to us through his word, right? Don't forget, we hear this and we forget and we think that this is just a trivial that this is the bedrock of our Christian identity, that God speaks to his people, that we don't have a mute God, but that he is constantly revealing himself through his word. 
And so as we approach Romans, I hope that there's expectation. I hope that you don't grow dull in your, in your reading of the scriptures, in your coming and listening to the scriptures be preached, that you lose the awe that God would make himself known to his people through the preaching and through the reading of his word. So we come into Romans with that mindset that God speaks to us, that he, he has something to say to you. He has something to say to me in these, in these scriptures. So let's dive into Romans. All right, what, um, what do we know? First, the, the Apostle Paul is the author of Romans, right? He, he wrote the book. Paul at this time is pretty old, right? He's pretty mature. He's been a church planner for 25 years now. And so he's not a young buck around. He's, uh, he knows what he's doing. And so he comes and, uh, and he's on his third missionary journey. Right, so Paul's been around. He's been around the country. He's gone. He's planted different churches in all kinds of different. Um, here we go. And he stops. Um, and he writes. Uh, he writes the. Um, he writes Ro- uh, the letter to the Romans in the uh, in the mid fifties, around fifty five A D. The church at Rome was planted around thirty late thirties to early forties. So the church has existed now for about fifteen to twenty years. So it's a it's a as far as that goes back then, that was a really mature church. You know, like that was, they, they had been around for a while. Um, if you're looking for what we've been doing, right? Preach through Second Corinthians. We stopped, we did the Ten Commandments, and now we're on Romans. And the reason is Paul writes in Acts 20 through 21, Paul stops and he actually writes the book of Romans there. Uh, and so that's why we're stopping, is that we're stopping because this is where Paul writes the book. And we're kind of following his journey as he writes. So, when you understand why did Paul write, right? I mean, this is a very expense. This is a very expensive letter. He didn't just pop out his, you know, his MacBook and start typing the email. He didn't grab a piece, you know, a couple pieces of paper and just write it down and send it in in the mail. This cost him a lot. Parchment, ink. Um, Paul actually didn't even write it. He dictated it to a guy named Tertius. Most of the first century was write. But uh, but most of the, I think we're gonna get that. Awesome. Thank you. There we go. So most of the first century was uh, was illiterate, and uh, and Paul dictated this to Tertius, and Tertius wrote it. Um, Paul wrote uh, the letter to Romans for two reasons. Uh, one, because he wanted to go to Spain. So in Rome in uh, in uh, in Romans chapter fifteen, we see that. Paul has expanded his, his reach, right? He's gone around to all these different places. Paul's purpose was that he's a church planner, okay? And so Paul goes to places like Las Vegas. He goes to places like New York, like Chicago, and he finds and goes right in the middle of the city, and he starts proclaiming the gospel, right? And he sets up churches, and he builds churches. He sets up elders, and then he, he gets the church to be self-functioning, and he goes on to the next place. And what Paul said is, listen, I've, I've exhausted the work in these regions, like I've gone. Uh, I mean, imagine Paul is like from Canada. He's come into the U.S. and he's gone to all the major places in the U.S. And he's like, listen, like there are people that can do what I've been doing. I've set it up. It's good to go. But I want to go to where it's never been preached. I want to go to lands where the gospel has never been heard. And so he's first he's taking this offering to Jerusalem. So he's going to be in Jerusalem. And he says, listen, I want to go to Spain. Nobody's preached the gospel in Spain. I want to go there. And he writes to the Romans and he says, Will you help me? Will you help me? And so it's, it's really important that we understand that Romans was written 
to help the church understand who Paul is. Imagine Romans as like one of the biggest, longest support letters ever. Right? I don't know if you've ever had to, those who have gone on missions, you've written like a support letter to somebody asking them to support you and to kind of fund your trip and help you through finances and prayer and all kinds of different things. Well, that's what Paul's doing. They don't know Paul, right? Paul didn't plant the church. Paul's never been to the church. In fact, no apostle planted the church at Rome. Um, Jews came and they planted the church early on. And so Paul didn't know, Paul didn't know the Romans. And so he's writing this whole thing so that they might know him, that they might see, because they probably heard some some funky things about Paul. They probably heard that he was really liberal and that he didn't believe the same things that they did. And so Paul's writing to correct their beliefs. He's writing to show them what he believes. But it's not it's not just to introduce Paul. It's more than that. The purpose of Romans is that a church would have such would have a vision of God so deeply ingrained in them that they would send out missionaries. Right? It's, it's that they wouldn't be inward focused, that they would be outward focused. Because the challenges of a lot of churches, honestly, is that they're a holy huddle. Right? The frozen chosen. They just sit there and they huddle together and they, and they freeze up. And what Paul is saying is, listen, it's not about you. You need to get a bigger vision of this world and realize that there are people that are lost. There are people that have not heard of Christ. And that you are made to live for bigger than you. And so he is writing Romans, and and catch this, if you read Romans, if you really get Romans, it will send you out forever. You will be changed because it will send you out into the world to be a missionary, right? Right where you're at, it will change the way that you interact with those that you work with. It'll it'll change the way that you interact with your family, that you interact with those that, that you relate with in all spheres of life. And so Paul writes the book of Romans to give them a vision of the God who sends the God who sent his son, the God who is sending Paul to go to those that are unreached, that they might partner, that they might partner with him. And so the book of Romans is one that is outward focused upon reaching those that don't know Christ. But this isn't the only reason, right? There's a second reason that Paul writes the book of Romans, um, and it's to unite. Um, it's to unite the uh, the people together. So the Roman church was uh, was planted by Jews. In Acts 8, uh, Paul is holding the coats of those that kill Stephen. Stephen is the first Christian martyr. You know, he, he's killed, and then after that, the Jews that are Christians come back and say, hey, man, we got to get out of here. They're killing people. Like, it's time to leave. And so you see this mass exodus of people. They leave. They flee from Jerusalem. And where do they go? Right? A lot of Jews apparently went to Rome. And so they went to Rome, and they carried the gospel to Rome, and they planted the church. And so the church at Rome was planted by early Jews, probably around the 30s, right after Christ had been crucified. They go and they, and they leave and they go and plant this church. But there's a lot of fighting, right? Jews just there, for some reason, there's always conflict. And, uh, and the Jewish Christians and the Jewish non-believers were fighting a lot. They were at each other. And so Claudius, the Roman emperor, he said, listen, I'm tired of you guys fighting. I'm tired of you quabbling. And he just kicked the whole bunch of them out. He's like, I'm done with you. And so he just casted all the Jews out of Rome for five years, right? He says, you're gone. And so what was predominantly a Jewish church, its leaders were Jewish, its founders were Jewish, now all of a sudden becomes a Gentile church where all the Jews are taken out. And so you see in, in around 54 AD, Claudius dies, and you have Nero come on the scene. And Nero allows all the, all the Jews to come back into Rome. And so you have this conflict that emerges between the Jews, between the Gentiles. They disagree about how do you live, right? The Jews have certain things that they will eat and that they won't eat. And the Gentiles say, listen, we can eat all things because we're free. 
And so you see this conflict. Probably some of the Gentiles were in leadership, and the Jews come now wanting to be back in leadership. And so you have conflict between Jews and Gentiles, and Paul writes Romans to unify them. He writes the book of Romans that that he might bring peace between two factions that are angry at one another or have strife between one another. And so Romans is inward, is that it promotes unity and harmony. How? Right? Because it humbles us. It humbles us. The book of Romans will humble you. It will put you flat on the ground because you realize that, listen, you did nothing to stand before God. Your good works are nothing before him. You stand justified before him sheerly because of God's grace through Jesus. And when that sinks into your heart, it will humble you and it will strip away your pride. And no longer can you boast about what you've done or can you point out somebody else's faults and failures because God didn't do that to you. And so Romans will humble you and it will promote unity. And so do you have unity? Do you have unity in your life, in the church, in your relationships? Can I just push a little bit? Maybe it's because of pride. Maybe you really don't believe as deeply as you think that you're justified before God by faith, that you your heart has inclinations to believe that maybe you've done things that God would be pleased with or that he loves you because you're a good person. When you believe those things, then you'll live out those things with other people, and it will create division and divisiveness. But if you believe that you've been saved by grace through faith, it will humble you, and it will bring about unity in your relationships. Not all relationships, listen, because there's going to be strife, right? There are going to be people that don't believe the same thing, but you will be able to have peace inside because you will be able to love those who don't love you. You'll be able to love those who hate you, who persecute you even, because you know that God did that for you. Right? So we have these two, these two ideas, right? That Romans is written to be outward focused, right? That he wants them to be a mission sending church, not just to stick inwards, but then you say, Paul has this inward focus that he says, listen, stop being divisive, that you need to come together in unity. Now, how do these, how do these two come together? Christopher Ash, he says this, he says, one is to do with evangelism and mission, looking outward with zeal. The other is to do with unity and harmony, looking inwards to build a new society in the church. One is about eagerness, the other about harmony. One about partnership, the other about peace. How do they come together? Right? I mean, because I think about how would we handle this in the church, right? What would we do if we have our churches divisive and they're kind of arguing back and forth with one another, right? Most churches would hold a conference, you know, we need to hold a conference. We need to talk about unity. We need to talk about, like, why we're the same, why we're this. You know, what about evangelism? You know, we'd hold a conference or we'd have a whole session or a whole preaching series over evangelism. We think that that would fire people up for evangelism. But you see, what Paul does is, is different because he doesn't do either. What he, instead of, of telling them that they need to look inward, inward or outward, is he says that they need to look upward. Right? He says, listen, what will propel you towards unity and what will send you out on mission is that you aren't focused on yourself any longer, but instead you're caught up in the glory of God, right? Is that you are so fixed upon who God is and upon what he's like, upon his beauty and his goodness, that you will, you will be humbled and that you will also be empowered. You see, God's glory through Jesus humbles us and empowers us to be sent out. And so what do you think about in your free time? What does your, your heart and your mind wander to? Does it actually dwell upon who God is? Does it actually think about his beauty and his love? When you're out and you see a sunrise or when you're with friends, do you just enjoy the moment or are you able to see that this is a little taste of what God's glory is like, of who he is and what he's like? 
Do you see that when we are focused upon God's glory, it lifts us? For you are too, man, you, we are too small for, for us to orbit around ourselves. We were not made to revolve around our own lives. And you will find that selfishness will destroy you and it will hinder you from, from being able to enjoy anything in life because you'll constantly be thinking about yourself. But when you're able to get a, a, a gaze, be fixed upon God's glory, that will free you. It sets you free. And the whole book of Romans is about freedom, is that we are enslaved to ourself, to our selfishness, and to our sin. And that only when we get a taste of God and his magnificence and his glory, only then will we be set free to live and to love others as he's created us to be. And so the book of Romans is all about God, right? That word God is used over 150 times in the book. It's the most used word in the entire book of Romans. It drips with God. It's saturated, overflowing with the idea of God and his presence. And so as you read Romans, as you listen to it preached, you will find that you have a gaze and you have a vision of God that will send you and move you and transform you. So what are some signposts? I want to I want to switch. We've learned about the purpose of Romans. The purpose of Romans is that they would be sent outwards, have unity inwards by by looking upwards. Right? The way that they are sent out and the way they are healed within is by looking up. And that's true for us too. You want to be sent out on mission if your life is boring, right? You want to actually be some do, be adventurous, do something for God. You want to actually have unity within your relationships then look up. Look up at God. Stop being fixed on yourself because that's what creates boring life and that's what creates disunity is when we're focused upon ourselves. When you look up, it will send you out on adventure and it will heal you within. Right? So what are signposts? How do we understand the book of Romans? It's a big book, right? There's 16 chapters. So I want to real quick provide some signposts. Um, a couple weeks ago, I was out at Wheaton Island. Uh, I love fishing, so uh, as most of you probably have heard by now. Uh, and so I was out fishing and, uh, I, I don't have time for that. Um, so I, uh, I, I paddled out about two or three miles and, uh, and was fishing and I was like, you know, I'm going to try to find my way back. And so I started going into the mangroves and thinking, you know, I'll find my way back around. So back home and man, I paddled probably two or three miles extra. Like I, I was so beat. I got so worn out because I, I kept trying to take these routes and these roads and blaze my own trail. And like they all led to dead ends. I like kept thinking like, Oh, the water's flowing here. And so I'll turn here and it'll lead me home. And sure enough, man, there's dead end right there. And so I'm kind of like beating my head cause I'm tired and I'm, I'm sun beaten. And finally I notice, I look up and I'm like, Oh, there's signs, you know, like, wow, you know, somebody actually came before me and put signs up that you can follow. And so I, I, uh, I I began in my infinite wisdom to follow the signs that were laid before me. And, uh, and I followed the signs, and, man, it was beautiful. Can I tell you, it was gorgeous because there's a part of the trail where it takes you underneath the, in between these mangroves and underneath them, and you go and you're able to enjoy the beauty that's around you, right? And so that's what I want to do is that I want us to see some signposts. I want to lay out some things that hopefully as you go through it might help you appreciate and understand the beauty that is in this book rather than trying to blaze your own trail and being frustrated by its complexity. So, a couple things. First, um, there are about six sessions or six different sections of Romans, right? So I want you to remember six S's, okay? Six S's. First, there's sin, salvation, sanctification, sovereignty, uh, service, and the last one is sending, right? 
So we're gonna we're gonna walk through those the first part of Romans. Uh, Romans chapter one eighteen through three twenty is all about sin, right? Paul is basically unpacking our our darkness. Okay, I want you to picture that you're in a dark room right now, right? Because that's where Paul starts out. Paul Paul starts out with each of us in a dark room, right? And before perhaps you didn't realize it was dark because that's all you knew, that's all you saw was this room, and so you didn't think it was dark. As we read Romans, we begin to understand how dark it is. In, in Romans 1, 18 through, through 3.20, we get a glimpse of the darkness, of how truly separate and how truly isolated, how truly alone right? we are in this room of darkness. But we see, we get a glimpse that there's a light, that there's a door that light comes through. And that little glimpse of light, it shows us right, both that there's hope for an escape out of our darkness, but also it reveals that man, we are in we are in darkness, and you can't read Romans one, but except realize that all of us stand condemned before a just God, right? One of the things that we believe as Christians is that God is just, and praise the Lord, right? We deal in a country, right? I mean, look look at all around us. If we have Christians that are being persecuted, if we have uh, if we have people that are being martyred, and and whole countries that are committing genocide against their people, that are enslaving their people, you better hope that there's a God of justice, or else you're going to live in a world of despair. If you actually pay attention to the to what's going on around us, you better hope that there's a God of justice, that at the end there is justice for people. Because if you don't believe that, then you are going to walk in despair if you have your eyes open. But Romans talks about that there is a God of justice, but yet that's terrifying for us because it's not just justice out there, it's justice in here. Right? I, I, each of us have violated God's law. Each of us stands condemned before him. And Romans helps us to see the darkness of our own soul. So you see sin is the first part, chapters 1 through 3, right? But there's a, there's a switch, 321, there's a switch that happens. And Paul lays out that God comes and he opens the door for us, right? As he says that there is salvation, there is healing from this darkness, that the sin that is enslaving you, there is freedom from it, right? And he says that the answer isn't by you being a good person, it's not by you working hard, it's not because you have the key, right? It's not because you know the secrets, it's because God comes and he unlocks the door. You're in a dark room and God comes and he opens the door and you're now able to see the light because he has shown that light in the face of his son, Jesus, because Jesus died and through his death and resurrection has opened up the door for you and for I. So we see salvation that it's by faith, it's through grace. But it's not just this, it's not just that you're justified before God. Now, how do I change, Right? Because I might be forgiven, but how do I change? How do I practically change the way that I'm living? Because, yeah, I, I know that I'm forgiven. I know that God loves me, but I'm still struggling. I still struggle with these things. I still find that in times that, you know, I want this, or I'm selfish, or I use this person, or I, I find my identity falling into my career, or falling into my family, or falling into all these different areas. How do I change? And that's what Romans 6 through 8 is all about. Is that you see, as we leave that dark room and we start our journey into the light that it's really bright and it blinds us and it's hard because we don't know exactly where we're going or how to go there or what to do. And that we're pretty weak because we've been in the darkness so long and so we need his strength. And so what Romans 6 through 8 all, is all about is how does God change us? It's about God leading us to be more like him. He guides us. He strengthens us and empowers us for our journey into the light with him. So sanctification. And then in chapters in chapters 9 through 11, it goes on to God's sovereignty. Who's in control of your life? Whose plans stand? Did you love God or did God love you? 
What does it mean that God has elected us? That God has predestined us? These things do not like to stand up. So what does it mean that God has elected us? That he has predestined us? Romans 9-11 through 11 deals with understanding that God is in control. And can I tell you this is really good news? Because, man, if your life messes up, if you lose a job, if you end a relationship, if something goes askew in your life, can I tell you the comfort that is in God's sovereignty? That actually he is in control of all things and that he loves you and that all things work together for good for those that love God and are called according to his purpose. God will use whatever is going on in your life for good because he is sovereign, because he is in control. And so Paul shows that we can trust in his sovereignty. Right? The, the next stage is he propels us out. He says, listen, what I'm telling you isn't a bunch of ideas. It, it's not impractical, but it actually sends you out. And so in Romans 11 through 15, or in Romans 12 through 15, Paul talks about service. He talks about how understanding these things about God will actually change the way that you interact with everybody around you. He talks about how it will change your relationship with yourself, how it will change your relationship with God, how it will change your relationship with the government, how it will change your, your relationship with those that you love and those that you hate, right? He talks about all of these things that this isn't just impractical things. The book of Romans will drastically, if you allow it, if you come and you have an open heart and you allow it, it will change you. It will mold you, right? And this isn't the last thing. It's not just service, but he says, if you understand the gospel, if you understand God's glory, it will send you. It will send you out on the mission. And so are you open to God sending you? Where is God sending you? Because he is. The question is, will you go? Maybe it's your workplace. Maybe you don't even realize that that's the mission that God's sending you to. But God is going to send you. And if we understand that, that's what it talks about, is that God is sending us. God is sending us to be his ambassadors, to be his missionaries, wherever we are at. So that is an outline. That is an outline of Romans. I want right now what us to do is I want us to take our first steps. Um, So I want us to begin our journey um, in the book of Romans. So if you have your Bibles, this would be a good time to turn to Romans. Um, we're going to be in Romans Romans chapter 1. Romans 1, verse, verse 1 through 7. It says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, who is descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name, among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So with our last remaining minutes, I want to point out one, the big idea in this section. I want to point out three different things that we get to see. First, the big idea is that Paul writes this, this is an introduction, right? He's introducing himself. He's showing that they are united, right? The big idea is that they are united by the same gospel. Nothing else will put together a group of people that are entirely different from one another, right? You see a lot of organizations that they're the same because they um, they make the same amount of money, 
because they're the same race, because they're the same age, because they enjoy the same activity. But do you see God's church is unique and that it combines a group of people that are radically different from one another in age and preference and race and income, right? And so God's church gathers together. Um, so we are joined by the same gospel, right? He joins us together. We are united by that thing, by our faith in Jesus. It brings us. So three things I want us to notice. Three things I want us to notice about this passage. First, I want us to notice the nature of the gospel or the what of the gospel. What is the gospel? The second thing is the results of the gospel. You know, so the so what, right? So what difference does the gospel make? How does it actually change me? What does it do? Uh, And then the last one is the purpose of the gospel. Why? Why did God choose the gospel? Why does he want us to proclaim it? What? What's the reason for doing these things? First, uh, the nature of the gospel. Um, the first thing that we need to understand about the gospel is that it's not ours. right? It says it's the gospel of God. God's copyrighted it, so we can't change it. Okay, That's important for us to realize is that it's not free for us to meddle around with. We can't say, well, listen, I don't really like this part or that part, so you know, I'm going to change it. That's not how this operates. It's God's gospel. He's the author of it. He's the source of it, and he has entrusted it to us. And so the gospel is God's. But it's, it's not just that he's the source of it. He's also the object of it, right? Because what is the gospel about, right? The, the gospel is about God. And so he's the source of it, and he's the object of it. The gospel is about God all the way through. The second thing that we notice is that the gospel is prophesied about, right? So we knew that this was coming. We knew that the gospel was coming because we have the Old Testament. And what Paul is saying here is he's saying, listen, if you read the Old Testament truly, you're going to see the need for Jesus. You're going to see that he had to come. And one of the things we learn in, in, in secret church is there's a narrative tension that drives the entire Old Testament, right? It's God's wrath and his mercy. Is it how is it that God will be able to sustain being with a people that is so sinful, why doesn't he just destroy them, right? But yet, how can he show his mercy on people? And so you have this tension that drives, and it drives each one of our lives. Is we, we realize, like, how is it that God, and I don't know if you've gone through the places in your, like this in your life, but, but you stop and you say, how is it that can God can actually be here? Does God actually forgive me? Because if he knew my heart, if he knew what I actually was thinking right now or what I was actually doing, would he still love me? Would he still be here? Is God's justice going to destroy us? Or will his mercy just let us do whatever we want, right? That's the tension in the Old Testament is, is God just going to say, well, my mercy, you know, will go. And so whatever, they can do whatever they want. And he doesn't care about holiness. And he just, he shows mercy to the expense of his justice. And he's a bad judge. And that, that's the tension is how does these go together? And the Old Testament talks about it, forces us to see that these are met in Jesus. Both God's wrath and God's mercy come together in Jesus. Because God showed his wrath upon his son that he might show his mercy upon us. And only when you see that, and the Old Testament's full of examples of it. Not only this, the Old Testament prophesies about the coming Messiah. Isaiah 53 is a good example. We could go and spend tons of time going through and talking about it. But I, I urge you, check out Isaiah 53, Psalm 22, Daniel 7. I mean, there's tons of them out there. But Isaiah 53 in college, I, had a, I wrote like a book on it, like 30 pages on it. Um, and so one of the things I noticed is that there's over 12 prophecies concerning Christ in it. And it's, it's amazing the detail in which Isaiah predicts the coming Messiah. 
And so you see that Jesus coming on the scene isn't just something that was unseen. It was foretold, but it was hidden. It was foretold, but it was, it was hidden, right? And Jesus comes on the scene, and now it's revealed what was, what was told long ago. Right, so the gospel concerns the nature of the gospel concerns Jesus' incarnation. Right, he says that he is a descended from David according to the flesh. So what this means is that Jesus is the King. Right, Paul starts out the the letter to the Romans by saying, "Listen, we we live under a democracy, but that's not as Christians. That's not what we really live underneath. We live under a monarchy, where God is King. Right, we live underneath King Jesus, and He is the one that reigns and rules in our lives, and so we submit to Him." And he is a good and he is a loving king. Right? He's a king descended from David. But not only that, he was declared to be the Son of God in power. Right? By the by the Spirit, by the Spirit of holiness in his resurrection. And so what in the world does that mean? What does it mean that he was declared to be the Son of God in power? What it means is that when Jesus came and he took on flesh, that he was already the Son of God, but he was the Son of God in weakness. Right? Philippians two talks about this, that he was he came and he was weak. And he took on our infirmities, and he bore in our failings, and he emptied himself. And so we have the Son of God in weakness throughout. And then in his resurrection, he is declared to be the Son of God in power. He is clothed in power from on high, and he's exalted at the right hand of the Father. And so we have that the gospel is about Jesus, about his weakness, but also his exaltation into power that he reigns. It's good news that he was incarnate. He was both man and God, right? We serve the God-man, right, who, who was perfectly God for eternity but came and took on flesh. And so the incarnation is here. That's the, the nature the nature of the gospel. So what are the results? What are the results of the gospel, right? The results of the gospel, the first one that it says is it brings about the obedience of faith. What in the, what's ob- the obedience of faith, right, that there's all kinds of different possibilities, but the two that stick out is that when you hear the gospel, right, there's a call. When you hear that Christ died for you, was buried, was raised from the dead, there's a call upon your life to believe it, to put faith in that, to trust it. And when you do that, that's an act of obedience, right? You, you're called to do that. But it's not just the initial act of obeying God and putting faith in Jesus, right? It's the way that we live our lives as Christians. Now, I don't know about you guys, but there, when I was a kid, there were different reasons I obeyed, right? Sometimes I obeyed because I wanted reward. You know, I obeyed because I knew that there was going to be dessert or that I was going to get, you know, to watch TV or I was going to get to play, you know, the Wii or whatever else it is. Sometimes I obeyed because I was scared of punishment, you know, like I knew I really did not like the belt. And so therefore I did not want to receive the belt, right? And so my obedience was because I did not want punishment, Okay, and in the same way, there's all kinds of different reasons we can obey God, right? But he says, listen, there's a certain type of way that obedience to God actually works, right? We, we obey God not because we're afraid that he's going to blow us to kingdom come or not because we think that our obedience necessarily means that he loves us more. We, we obey God because we trust him, because he already does love us, right? And so he says, listen, the goal of the gospel is not just that you would obey God initially, but that you would obey God throughout your entire life and that your obedience will be marked because you trust God, because you see him for who he is. When you, when, when you see that God is generous, that God is our provider, then you're not going to, to go out and to worry about having to, you know, like you're not going to stretch your things to the bones because you know that God's going to be your provider, right? You know that God is your caretaker. You'll have peace in those things. 
And so getting a, getting a vision for who God is will change us now. So results, it, it transforms us so that we obey out of faith instead of out of fear or out of just a desire to think that he'll love us more. We, we believe and we obey out of faith. Um, the next thing is it says it makes us inheritors of God's promises, right? And so God in the Old Testament made all these promises to Abraham. He says, listen, through you, Abraham, I'm going to bless the whole world, and I'm going to give you this land, and I'm going to, to through you, make a people for my name. And what Paul is saying here is he's saying, listen, that while Israel was the people of God, we are the people of God. All the promises that God gave to Abraham are given to us. That we, listen, the true Israel is Jesus, right? He is the true Israel, right? The true Israel is the true people of God, and Jesus is, the, is exemplifies and shows that he is the true person of God. He demonstrates that he is the true Israel. And so as we put our trust in him, we become the people of God. We become the Israel, as Paul will later say in Romans, that all Israel isn't those who are descended from, from the flesh, but it's those who place their faith in Jesus. And so we see that we are now a part of God's people. And the promises that were given to the people of God in the Old Testament are the promises that are given to us now. So it makes us inheritors. It sets us apart unto God and makes us servants. Right? He says a servant of God. And what he says, he says, listen, my life is not my own. My life is at God's disposal. I'm set apart. And so what has God set you apart from? What is God wanting to set you apart from? Do you see, we, we choose to be set apart in categories of our life. We say, God, listen, I'm going to give you this category. Listen, I'll be set apart in my finances. I'll be set apart in my sexuality. I'll be set apart in, and we kind of go through these categories and we kind of like give categories in our life that we'll be set apart in. But do you understand that, that for Paul, his whole life was set apart. Paul had a whole dream and a whole vision of what his life was going to be. He, had, he was on the fast track to political and religious prosperity. Right, He was going to be you know, like a Pharisee of Pharisees. And when Christ came, his whole life was set apart. His whole plans, his whole dreams were given unto God. And God reshaped his whole life. And so one of the results of the gospel is that we understand that our whole life will be set apart for God. Your work, your play, your finances, your sexuality, your friendships, your family, all of these things are set apart unto God. There's no realm in your life that Christ doesn't cry out, Mine. All of it is his. All of it is his. So we see that it sets us apart. It also changes our identity. The gospel changes our identity. He says that we are loved and called saints. You see, one of the results of the gospel is that you aren't marked by your failures, by your past any longer. But in Christ, you're called a saint. You're called holy and pure, blameless. And when you realize that you've been given a new identity, it will change you. You'll interact with people differently. You'll live out of that. You, we live out of our identity. How we see ourselves is what we live out of. And so the gospel gives us a new identity as saints. And through this, it, it also it gives us grace and peace. It gives us grace and peace. So we've seen the nature of the gospel. We've seen the purpose of the gospel. And, and we'll finish with, or we've seen the, the nature and the results of the gospel. Now we're going to, Finish with the purpose of the gospel. Why? Right? Why does God choose the gospel? Why does God give us the gospel? Um, and this is really important. He does it for the sake of his name. Right? He does it for the sake of his own glory. The bedrock hope of Christians, as important as it is for God to love us, the bedrock of our hope 
is that God cares about his own glory, right? God cares about preserving his own name. And that's the bedrock. You can't help but see in the entire Old Testament, God is saying, listen, I will make a name for myself through you. And so God is bent and set on him making a name for himself, on his glory going out. And that's why we preach the gospel. That's why we we believe, and that's why all of these things happen, is that God might be seen as glorious, that God might be famous. And so let me ask, is God famous in your life? Is God the one that, receiving, that receives fame when something happens? Or do you take glory? Are you the one that, that, takes, you know, that takes the benefit? God is wanting to make himself famous through us. Are we allowing him? Are we stealing his glory from him? Are we, are we partners with him that help to make him famous to everyone around us because of what he's doing in our life? For that is the purpose that Paul writes to Romans. That's the purpose for which we live. Listen, the chief end of man is to glorify God by enjoying him forever. That is our chief end, is to glorify God by enjoying, by enjoying him forever. And so, do you enjoy God? Do you love him? Do you bask in his love for you? Does it, does it fill you? Is it enough for you? I hope that as we go on this journey together, that, that God's glory will overflow into your life. And it will change you, that you will have a, your eyes fixed on him, and it might propel you out of mission, and it might heal the unity and the relationships that you're in. Let us pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you for this book. Pray that as we read it, that you would change us. Pray that you would help us to see you, Jesus, through this, um, in your beauty, and your holiness, and your splendor, that everything around us uh, wouldn't be about that, but instead that it would be footprints of you, that it would be tastes and sights of of you and your presence and your glory. When we look at the sun, when we look at the mighty ocean, when we see the beauty in our relationships and the goodness of the gifts that you give to us, that we realize that all of these testify of your glory, of what you're like, that they, the gifts show us what the giver is like. And so change us, Lord. Rescue us from ourselves. Fix our eyes on on you, for you are who we were made to be with. We love you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.